Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. That means Paul's not being inconsistent with the gospel. He's actually being very, very consistent. If someone is happy to talk the talk but not walk the talk, then we very quickly dismiss them as not being credible. They're not prepared to live what they preach, so we don't give credence to what they have to say. In the New Testament book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is confronting similar problems as religious leaders are not living what they preach. Tonight, as we join Dr. Corbett, he continues in the series, The Freedom of Christ. We're in the book of Galatians and confronting hypocrisy. We're continuing through our series through Galatians, and this is going to be, I think, highlighting one of the aspects of apostolic ministry. And when I say apostolic ministry, essentially what we're looking at are the traits, the leadership traits of the early apostles and how they apply, not necessarily to people claiming to be apostles today, but I think to every church leader. Every church leader has to learn the lessons of the model leaders, that is, the early apostles. And in doing that, I think what we're going to see, and this might help my ministry colleagues who have almost universally struggled in this area, and it's the area of conflict. As we look at this, as we go deeper into Galatians chapter 2, I've called this confronting hypocrisy. This would have to be one of the most challenging aspects of any pastor's leadership role. So let's pray. Father, today, I pray that when we're done, when we've finished looking at this section of your word, your Holy Spirit would have spoken to us. Perhaps there are those who have been disciplined. Perhaps there are those who have been confronted or corrected by a church leader. And they have taken offence and they have felt unloved when in fact they should have dropped to their knees and thanked God that someone cared enough to tell them the truth. And so I pray now that as we look at your word, you would give me the grace that is necessary, the tenderness and the compassion for people that is, is exhibited in the shepherd heart of Christ. And I pray, Lord, now, give me that shepherd heart. Help me to shepherd people, even people whom I may never meet, who are listening to this via podcast, by radio, or by the internet. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen that Paul has had just these accusations leveled against him, that he is actually someone who is preaching another gospel. And this has caused him, firstly, to be quite upset. And he's actually, if we were, and I haven't been highlighting this, but if we were highlighting a study in Paul's leadership, I would have pointed out that Paul's leadership is seen in how he handled this dispute, this dispute of the false accusations, as he is contending that these have been false. He's been accused of preaching what his opponents called an unauthorized gospel. And so now Paul is going to say, unauthorized, hey? Have a listen to this account. I'm going to put it in writing. If you want to verify it with Peter, that is the Apostle Peter, whom he calls Cephas, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And you've got to know that I'm not someone who has not conferred 
with the other apostles about the gospel that I preach. So having said that, we can see that we've already noted in the first part of chapter 2 that Paul says that he went up by revelation. He had been gone for 14 years and he met with Peter and James and John. He took with him Barnabas and even Titus. And Titus was not a Jew. And Paul made the point that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. And so these false teachers, these false brothers, who were claiming that in order for you Galatians, you non-Jews, to become a Christian, you have to first be circumcised. Just, just note this, we went to Jerusalem, <laughs> the center of Judaism, where the apostles were. We met with them, Barnabas, myself, and Titus. And then Paul is going to make this, this point that it seemed that even Barnabas was, was swayed when they left Jerusalem and went to Antioch. So let's pick it up now. This is Galatians chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, now Antioch was Paul and Barnabas's home church. It says that when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Now, have we got your attention? I'm sure he had the Galatians' attention at this. Here is a confrontation that Paul is narrating. He wasn't a passive leader. This is, I hope, the leadership point. Again, I'm not wanting to focus on his leadership, but I do think it's an important thing to look at. Paul was not a passive leader. He was not someone who said, well, God will take care of it. Now, please do not misunderstand me. Paul clearly was someone who believed that God took care of things. But he's also a leader who realized that God had given him a responsibility to be able to take action when it was needed. Now, why did Paul feel the need to confront Peter, whom he calls Cephas? (laughs) Peter was the name that Jesus gave Cephas. Cephas was Peter's old Jewish name. But Peter gives him, sorry, Jesus gives him a Greek name, Peter, which means rock. And so I think there's a deliberate usage of this name to indicate something about Peter. But why was he why was he confronting Peter at all? We read in verse 12 for before certain men came from James. What James? Which James? James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, who is now the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Now, before those men came, Paul tells us, Peter was eating with Gentiles. And that's something that Jews didn't do. But when they came, that is the messengers from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Just a funny little comment here. Uh, Kim was leading a Bible study group and they happened to be looking at this verse uh, as they went through Galatians and there was a a relatively new Christian in that group. (laughs) And when Kim read that there was a circumcision party, he thought, boy, you Christians have really weird parties. I would never go to a circumcision party. Of course, um, the others in the group explained to him, 
we don't have parties for this. <laughs> this means a group of people. And he went, oh. So in case you've just heard me say the circumcision party, please don't misunderstand me either. It means a group of people who promoted circumcision as a necessary Christian right. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Now, let's consider what we've just seen just in these two verses, verses 11 and 12. What we would have seen looking over the shoulder of the Galatians who are reading this epistle, this letter from Paul, they would have seen, hang on, Paul's been accused by these messengers of James, again, in Galatia, who have said he preaches one thing to Jews and another thing to Gentiles. But if this account is true, and they have no reason not to believe it's true because they could verify it, that means Paul's not being inconsistent with the gospel. He's actually being very, very consistent. In fact, he's being so consistent, he's preaching and teaching this gospel in front of the Apostle Peter and in front of the Apostle James, as we've already seen. So the Galatians would have understand, they would have understood, Paul was not what his opponents had accused him of. And there is good reason for thinking that they did. And the reason we could think that is because we see in the book of Acts that after Paul and Barnabas' initial visit to Galatia, some chapters after that, they return. Now, if Paul was seen as a rogue or as a false preacher, they, he would not have been welcomed back. That's the point there. Verse 13, And the rest of the Jews acted, these are Christian Jews, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So you can imagine how upset Paul would have been by Peter's cowardice at buckling to the pressure of the Judaizers. These are Christians who believed that in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. But if he felt disappointed with the Apostle Peter, how must he have felt with Barnabas doing the same thing, going along with the Apostle Peter, knowing that it was he, Barnabas and Titus, that some time before this had gone to Jerusalem and openly declared the gospel they were preaching. And now Barnabas is backing away from that. And so how would Paul have felt? I would say he would have been utterly devastated. You can imagine how heavy it would have been on him. But notice this leadership principle. Paul is not afraid to publicly shame people. Publicly shame people. I think this is in a book by Dr. David De Silva. He talks about the element in the Greco-Roman world of honour and shame. And shame was a big deal. It was, you, you, you did not do it lightly. Honour was prized more than riches. And so... What we have here is Paul doing something that was, that was not something he took lightly. In verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the, notice this expression, the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, 
if you now notice this this scene is taking place before them all in a very public setting in the christian community of antioch if you though a jew live like a gentile and not like a jew how can you force the gentiles to live like jews great question now notice this the first meeting that paul had with Peter, we read in chapter one, and it was private. It was it was not a public meeting. It was Paul going to the apostle Peter, the lead apostle of Christ himself. You could well imagine the conversations they had. I I could imagine Paul saying, "What was he like? What what did what, what did he say? What what are some of the things he did? What were his mannerisms? How, how was he under pressure?" Was he consistent? You know, all of these questions that Paul would have had for Peter. I also think Peter would have said to Paul, yeah, there's all that. But let me tell you the most important thing. That was that Sunday morning we went to the tomb. I didn't believe it at first. I didn't believe the women's reports. When we raced there from Jerusalem, we went outside to this tomb. It was true. The stone was rolled away. Just as the women had said, there was evidence of the clothes being folded, not just thrown in a corner, and he was risen. And then he would have told Paul, and we went back bewildered. And that evening, Christ appeared to us. You can imagine Paul gaining this insight, this information to the account of the resurrection. And Paul will later say to the Corinthians that what we received about Christ being raised from the dead, we also passed on to you. So there was certain knowledge that Paul received by revelation, but there was certain knowledge that Paul did his homework on and gained by being taught. Very, very interesting point. Leaders are humble enough to being taught. But notice this. The first meeting that Paul had with Peter in Jerusalem was in private. So he had a relationship. They knew each other. But this meeting was in public. It was bold and Paul was in the right. What he did was of great significance. I think the result of this was great shame for Peter. And far from Peter going, that's it, I'm offended. I'm, I'm walking away from Christianity. I'm walking away from Christ. How dare someone speak to me like that in public? That was not his response. How do we know that? Because in his epistles, he talks about the Apostle Paul with glowing accolades. And he describes Paul's writings as containing great insight and then pays Paul the highest compliment by saying that the things that we have received from Paul in writing, others twist them as they do the other scriptures. So Peter actually describes the epistles of Paul that we have received in our and are right now in our Bibles as God's word, scripture. That's what that word means, graphe. So 
Paul has challenged Peter. We saw in, in verse 15 in this very public meeting, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Peter, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we can see Paul is he's, he's giving Peter a lesson that he should have learnt a long time ago. And now he's having to school him in some of the things that it, we can now look at in hindsight that Christ had actually shown Peter. Not just by the, the vision that he received that led to him going to the house of Cornelius the Jew, but when Christ took Peter and James and John and the other disciples to Caesarea Philippi, a territory in the far north of the borders of Israel, largely Gentile area, that's where the Syrophoenician woman came to that dinner party and asked Christ to heal her daughter. And that's when they should have realised Jesus hasn't just come for Jews. He's come for people of all nations, no matter what their racial background, no matter what their national allegiance. Jesus has come for all people of every nation. That's what Peter should have realised. And now Paul is giving him the theology that demonstrates this is indeed what Christ is doing now. He is taking people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, throughout all ages and redeeming them. That's what he's doing. Therefore, what Paul is saying in front of this crowd gathered as he dresses Peter down publicly, a person who puts their faith, that is their trust, into what Jesus Christ has done for them, is, here's the word, justified. And they're justified by that faith, that trust in Jesus. Not by their own efforts, not by being circumcised, not by keeping separation laws such as never eat with a Gentile. The person who trusts Christ is saved, that is, made right with God, that is justified. It's a legal expression. It's being acquitted in a court of law, not because you're not guilty, but because your guilt has been atoned for through a legal process that now acquits you. Let's be really clear here. C.S. Lewis said, most Christians, when they think of forgiveness, they think of being excused. God does not excuse our sin when he forgives our sin. Our sin is still dealt with. It's dealt with, though, by Christ. And if you believe that, if you are trusting in Christ that he has done that for you, you are a candidate to turn to him right now and say, Jesus, I want to receive this gift that you're now making available to me. This gift of salvation, this gift of a new life, this gift, as Paul will say as we get into chapter 4, this gift of 
adoption. Beautiful, beautiful teaching. I can't wait to get into chapter 4 as we look at that. So here we have Paul saying that Jesus was the only one who could justify. He could justify a sinner. Why? Because Jesus himself had never sinned. Therefore, Jesus did not need a saviour. <laughs> I recently heard a young progressive pastor, which is a bit of a head scratcher for me, because progressive means denies the miracles that are recorded in the Bible, denies the supernatural element of the Bible. They try to, the expression is, liberate scripture. That's why they're called theological liberals. And this person was saying Jesus was just a man. Like, of course, because liberal theologians generally do not hold to the supernatural elements described in the Bible. Therefore, Jesus could not have been God in the flesh. That's way supernatural. But Jesus was just a man. And said this young progressive pastor, Jesus also would have sinned. He would have sinned. In fact, that story that I told you about the woman, the Syrophoenician woman coming, requesting that Jesus heal her daughter, this young progressive pastor actually said what Jesus did was the sin of racial superiority because he said to the woman, it's not right to give the bread of the children to dogs. And this person said that when Jesus said that, he was sinning. I can't tell you how wrong that thinking is, how wrong that interpretation of that event is. It is utterly wrong. Jesus was giving an example to his disciples of exactly the opposite point. <laughs> that all people have access to the grace of God. All people. He was ridiculing the racial superiority ideas of his Jewish disciples. And he wanted them to hear it and he wanted them to see it. And they, he wanted them to see how he responded to the woman graciously. In describing her, the, only, the second time Jesus ever used this expression, as having great faith. The other one was a Roman centurion. Again, a Gentile. The point being, he said this to two Gentiles. The point is absolutely exactly wrong that this progressive pastor was making. It wasn't Jesus expressing racial superiority. It was Jesus doing exactly the opposite. Did Jesus ever sin? Was it, was it just an embellishment, as this person claimed, especially in the Gospel of John, a, a gospel that we've just gone through, 31 parts. I recommend you have a look at it on SoundCloud if you haven't already heard it. And when the Gospel of John was written, did he distort and embellish, that is, make Jesus sound more divine than he actually was? Or did John tell the truth? I'm going to suggest to you there's good reason to believe John simply told the truth. That Jesus actually really was sinless because he records Jesus saying, which of you accuses me of sinning? And at that point, that question, no one came forward and did. Did John just make that up? 
There's so many things in the Gospel of John that reveal that he was telling the truth. And right at the end of his Gospel, the elders at the church at uh, Ephesus write, we can verify that these things are true and that the one who has written this has told you the truth. And so I believe it. I have good reason to believe it. Did Jesus sin? Was he the promoter of sin? Absolutely not. Did he think that forgiveness actually was God just excusing our sin? Absolutely not. And this is why Paul says in verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17 of Galatians, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is Christ then a servant of sin? The New English translation renders that is, is Christ then the one who encourages sin? The NIV says, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not, says the NIV. So no matter what translation you take, they are all rendering the original wording of Paul to say, Jesus did not sin. So when anyone has turned to Christ, something takes place in them that is miraculous. And it's the Holy Spirit coming into them, giving them justifying faith. That is, when you simply turn your heart toward God, and you may feel like you're a million miles away, you may feel like you could never do this Christianity thing, but let me tell you, you don't have to do it in your own strength. You have to simply turn to Christ, open your heart to him, and allow him to fill you with his spirit, and his spirit will give you the kind of faith, the believing faith, the justifying faith, the saving faith necessary to live the Christian life. It will be a translation of your desires. Your desires for the things that you wanted before you were a Christian, they will dissipate. And not only will they dissipate, but Christ will put within you a whole new set of desires. So, does Paul, as his opponents had accused him, does Paul actually encourage people to sin because he's saying Christ has paid the price for your sin? Is Paul actually saying, well, if Christ has paid the price for your sin, you can just go on sinning however you like because it's all been paid for. Is that what the Apostle Paul is saying? We read in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if the very thing that stopped me from coming to God was the fact that I was trying in my own strength by keeping the law of Moses, the Torah, as Jews call it, and if that was the thing that I now I, I know I can just I can put away, put that away now, that never saved me, it couldn't do it. But Paul says, but if I keep trying to do it in my own strength without the help of God, that is actually a sin because that is self-confidence it's putting your faith in self not christ and that might be a word for someone listening to me right now you don't have to try in your own strength christ can give you the strength to live for him galatians chapter 2 verse 19 for through the law paul says 
I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, and this is a great verse. This is one of the verses that changed and transformed my life. It transformed the life of Martin Luther. It transformed the life of John Wesley. It transformed the life of Jonathan Edwards, the great New England preacher. And it's this, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. Let that sink into your soul. When Christ died in paying the price for our sin and we put our faith and trust in him, it was as if we died to that way of living. And now that we've put our faith in Christ, we, as Christ was raised from the dead, we can be spiritually raised to life, to have eternal life, to spend eternal life beyond the grave with God our Father. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And here's the truth. You are just one prayer away from turning to Christ and accepting the hope of salvation that he offers you. This explanation led Martin Luther to form what became known as the Reformation of the Church. The doctrine of justification that we are saved is grounded in this idea that it's only Christ. Only Christ makes it available. So you are just one prayer away from beginning an everlasting relationship with God the Father, and I want to pray with you and for you right now. Father, I pray for all those who've joined with me, whether they're listening in their car, whether they're out for a walk, whether they're listening as they go to sleep even, however they're doing it on the internet, whether they're listening right now live, whether by radio, however it is, I pray that you would do something in their heart that causes them to cry out, God, forgive me. I want to receive what you offer. Please save my soul. Help me to come to know God and fill me with your spirit, I pray. And Christians have a tradition of whenever someone publicly prays and they agree, they say the word, I agree, and it sounds like this, amen and amen. And Father, I thank you for those who've joined with me now. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal your great love to them, that they might know the love of God the Father and that they might come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that they would come to know the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Galatians 5 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, Paul's explanation of the gospel transformed the life of Martin Luther and led to the Reformation. 
That same transformational power is at work today and can change your life. More from Dr Corbett next week as we continue in Galatians. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Thank you.